Hello, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome you to this event entitled Building Global Movements for Peace, People and Planet. This is part of Arise, an online festival of Labour's left ideas, and it's supported by a range of groups and publications. My name is Kate Hudson, and I'm General Secretary of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Our world is going through a number of major crises, some which even present existential threats to all life on this planet. So we cannot stand by. We need to put forward ways to transform our world and to put people, health and the planet first. Part of this must be changing the way the world is ordered and standing up to all those leaders globally who promote the policies of war and hate. A crucial part of this has to be progressive international cooperation on the left. That's why we're delighted to have this global platform today and to be building links between progressive movements and the left here in Britain and in Latin America, Europe, Africa and beyond. And part of this must also be standing with all those movements globally, striving to change the world for the better and to build a more peaceful future. And at the heart of this, it is vital that we include nuclear disarmament. The Arise Festival is a celebration of our values of peace, internationalism, solidarity and unity. And we're delighted that this discussion is part of the festival today. Due to a huge level of interest, in addition to this Zoom webinar, we're streaming live direct from the Arise YouTube page and across various Facebook pages. So without further ado, let's turn to our speaker. First of all, I'm turning to Matt Wilgris to tell us just a little bit about the Arise Festival. Matt, over to you. Hi, Kate, and thank you, everyone who's joining us. It's great to see hundreds of people on the Zoom. I can see over 400 people on the Facebook and plenty on the Twitter and the um, YouTube as well. So great to have so many people with us. And thank you to everyone who attended one of the first two events of this month-long Arise Festival. We've already had, we had the opening event on crisis resistance and the struggle for socialism with Jess Barnard and Richard Bergen in conversation last week and then we had a premiere of a pre-recorded film with Mike Jackson who many of you know from LGSM about LGBTQ liberation socialism and solidarity yesterday and you can catch all the events as they go along on the YouTube channel including if you want to re-watch this one later. Um, in terms of upcoming events the, the next one is tomorrow lunchtime which is women at the forefront resisting the Tory offensive and we're very excited we're going to have a striking RMT worker amongst the late editions to the platform for that one and then in the packed schedule which goes right through to July 27th we've got a public ownership rally on Wednesday, a Global Justice Now lunchtime stream on Friday, another film premiering from the Orgreave campaign on Sunday and so on and so forth um, ending with a really brilliant meeting with John McDonnell and a number of the unions going into dispute on building unity through struggle to end the conference and the online festival rather on July 27th. Um, in terms of the plug, I'm a bit, you might know someone a bit earlier than I was expecting, but the three things we really want you to do are as follows. The first thing is please do get a ticket for the whole festival at the link that will be posted. 
Um, as people know, all the different events, thousands of you tuning into are free, but we need people to purchase tickets, which start for as little as £4 to pay for the massive digital infrastructure. There's over 25 events during the whole thing. That costs thousands of pounds to put on in terms of Zoom, streaming software, etc., etc. The second thing is if you can give it a bit more, please do donate um, at the link that will be provided throughout the meeting. Um, I know that this can become a bit boring when people keep asking you for donations, but every £10 from everyone in this Zoom call, just on this Zoom call, would totally transform the situation that we face in terms of organising these events and the volunteers. And then thirdly and finally, please do share the event as it's going on. So if you're watching on Facebook, please share that stream. If you're on Twitter, please retweet the tweet that will be in the chat and please um, do your own tweets at Arise Festival as well. Um, thank you ever so much, Kate. Um, I can see Jeremy is here. So that's great news. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion that we've got ahead. Thank you, Kate. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, is it okay to drop Jeremy in it straight away, do you think? <laughs> um, if so, I will welcome Jeremy Corbyn as our next speaker. Jeremy is a long-term peace campaigner, of course. He's founder of the Peace and Justice Project. He's MP for Islington North and, of course, much more besides. So, Jeremy, a big welcome and the floor is yours. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Matt. And uh, well done organising this. And it's a pleasure to see so many new and old friends on it. Um, today is the 4th of July, which I hope um, those that are celebrating US independence will reflect for a moment on um, what some of the founding fathers wanted, which was a, um, a nation of peace rather than a nation of expansion. There are others who thought very differently, but it's a good opportunity to think about those things. You and I, Kate, were this morning at the funeral of Bruce Kent. Wonderful, wonderful man, campaigned for peace all his life. And uh, the church, local church to where I live, was absolutely packed out. And um, his widow, Valerie, gave a wonderful talk, not so much about the details of his life, because many of us knew those already, but the different influences on his life and the way in which he approached people and things and how he came to the peace movement by circuitous route of um, boarding school, army, church, local neighbourhood, supporting the poorest and most vulnerable people in the Euston area of London, and then eventually resigning the priesthood and becoming a full-time peace campaigner, which he was all his life. And I think we can draw inspiration from Bruce and the diversity of people he brought to the peace movement and his preparedness to always listen to people. Because Bruce is famous for campaigning against nuclear weapons, of course, Greenham Common, um, Trident, uh, renewals of various weapons system and in support of the non-proliferation treaty but he was also part of the movement for the abolition of war he was also supportive of lots of environmental and refugee causes as well and the last uh, substantial speech i heard him make was um in trafalgar square in the rally um against the uh, russian invasion of ukraine and the point he made was that uh, the Ukrainian people were being killed uh, or forced into exile and Russian soldiers were being conscripted into the army and dying as a result of this war. And he obviously called for peace through 
a ceasefire and through negotiations in order to bring about a peaceful world in the future. And I think it's that message we have to put because there can be no way to peace other than by negotiations. And so the longer people pour weapons into the war, both from Russia and from the outside, and the war will go on longer and longer, become an arms bazaar for the arms companies of the world, and won't actually save the lives of Ukrainian people or Russian soldiers. There has to be a peace process, but also recognising that this war has massive effects on um, food supply, energy supplies, and so much else, as well as the many millions of Ukrainians that have now been forced into exile and become refugees, mainly in neighbouring countries in Central Europe. But we have to just pause for one second here. I strongly support the rights of Ukrainian refugees to come, in this case to Britain, to live, to access the health service, the education service, and be supported and be given the right to work. I absolutely support that. The same rights should apply to refugees from other wars, such as Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Yemen, Palestine, and so many other wars around the world. Because the refugee flows to mainly North America and Europe at the moment, mainly I say, because there are others, uh, come from wars of occupation, aggression, or frankly, the theft of minerals. And if anyone thinks that um, somehow or other, years later, a war is justified, I ask them to think for a moment of the fervour that was put into launching a war against Afghanistan in 2001. The way the US um, uh, House and Senate voted overwhelmingly for it, the way the UK voted overwhelmingly for it, and all went in and decided to occupy Afghanistan. 20 years later, left Afghanistan, the poorest country in the world, the people with the most desperate poverty and hunger in the world, <clears throat> and actually the much worse situation for women than there ever was before in Afghanistan. And so the idea that the West went in for nation building needs to be um, seriously challenged, and we should be now supporting Afghan refugees, but also ensuring by whatever means can be done, food aid is urgently got there in order that people can at least live and um, sustain themselves and develop the education system. But wars don't come out of thin air. The worst situations in the world are also in, found in Yemen, a war sustained by British and American weapons to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia, which have been used to routinely bomb Yemen and bring such misery and such loss of life to so many people there. And so it is about the arms trade and how we control the arms trade. But it's also about the politics of peace. Last week, the House of Commons had a debate on the uh, issue of Iran and holding of nuclear weapons. I spoke in that debate. I <clears throat> called for talks with Iran, a return 
to the um, agreement by which Iran would not um, intensify the um, uh, uranium production up to a weapons grade level, but would restrict it to a fuel grade level that could only be used in nuclear power stations. I'm not actually in favor of Iran developing a lot of nuclear power stations, but clearly within international law, they have the right to do that. And um, therefore, lifting of the sanctions on Iran at the same time having a human rights dialogue and agenda with Iran. What's the alternative? The alternative to uh, leave Iran isolated, to continue the sanctions against Iran and uh, their likelihood of then a more dangerous situation appearing in the whole region. I was at the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, which called for a weapons of mass destruction free zone in the Middle East, which would, of course, include Iran and Israel, as well as Saudi Arabia, which could develop nuclear weapons if it had the inclination to do so. And so it is about understanding the politics of what goes on and uh, using the language of peace. And what saddens me is within all the discussion that's going on about the war in Ukraine now, and indeed in the past in Afghanistan and Iraq, in Syria and in Lebanon and in Libya and so on, armchair generals populating TV studios all around the world, looking at maps with big arrows of troops moving here and weapons moving there and planes moving the other place. The language of peace completely missing. NATO talks grandly of expanding, of taking more countries into NATO membership and saying NATO is a force for peace. Well, I think the best force for peace is actually popular opinion against wars and popular opinion that would help to bring that about. Now, who is going to be the interlocutor to bring about a uh, ceasefire in Ukraine? I don't know, but the UN clearly uh, uh, has not shown much appetite for doing very much about it. So maybe others could step into the breach, which is why I was one of those that signed the Athens Declaration, which Yanis Varoufakis, myself and others launched in Athens a couple of months ago, in which we were talking about the issues of non-alignment around the world and the power of non-aligned nations to actually bring about peace in the world. So it, I hope it's one of those nations that, or groups of nations that are going to step in and try to broker a ceasefire to save life, which is being killed live, people being killed live on our TV screens. A couple of other things I want to mention, because I know you've got a lot of speakers and limited for time, is you have to look at the issues facing the world. Post-COVID, the world is a more economically divided place than it was before. Global corporations have become infinitesimally richer than they were before this war began, infinitely more rather. And uh, the poorest people are the worst off. And in industrial countries, working class living standards have fallen. Uh, wage levels or real wage levels have fallen and we are moving into a new period of neoliberal economics. One at, minute, the time, at the same time, we're facing an environmental crisis which cannot be solved by neoliberal management, can only be solved by an interventionist economy. So let's try and turn the tide round. Oppose neoliberal economics, oppose the politics and economics of war and support the politics and economics of environmental sustainability, health sustainability and above all peace around the world. That is what can inspire young people. That is what can create a world fit for the next generation to live in. 
internationally it's already happening let's not isolate ourselves behind our national flags unite ourselves across national borders all around the world in order to say well actually we're a majority of people who don't want wars who don't want the destruction of our environment who want some peace for the future kate thank you very much indeed for inviting me today Thanks very much indeed, Jeremy. And I always take heart from knowing that we are indeed part of the global majority and it's our government that's out of step on pretty much every single issue. So thank you very much indeed for that. Um, it's a pleasure now to turn to our next speaker, Sevim Dagdalen. Sevim is an MP for Die Linke, the left party in Germany. She's a well-known international justice campaigner and a vocal opponent of the massive and worrying increases in military spending that are taking place in Germany and across Europe. So, Sevin, big welcome to you this evening. Thanks a lot, Kate. Uh, thanks for this uh, great and needed event. Um, I would like to begin my speech uh, with a quote from the French socialist Jean Jaurès. Over 100 years ago, he stated, Capitalism carries war within it like the cloud carries the rain. And he's right, Jean Jaurès. War is nothing else or nothing other than the continuation of profit maximization by military means. The main beneficiary of military conflicts and uh, war is the military industrial complex. And uh, in the face of the horrible war in Ukraine, and the new global militarism, uh, it is therefore now more important than ever for us to exchange the ideas on how to build uh, and, and strengthen an anti-militarist movement around the globe. And that's why I am very grateful for this initiative of the Arise Festival. I am going to start by briefly reporting on the new militarism and massive increases uh, in military spending in Germany in the wake of the Ukraine war. And then I would like to share some thoughts and suggestions with you on what we should do as global movement for peace in order to resist these militaristic tendencies and new bloc confrontation, especially in the light of the new strategic concept of the NATO adopted at the summit in uh, Madrid these days. First of all, like the US intervention in Iraq in 2003, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a blatant breach of international law that cannot be justified by anything. This war must end as soon as possible. And the only way to achieve this is by a negotiated solution, a diplomatic solution. And unfortunately, we are witnessing a strategy to contrary, instead of concentrating on a diplomatic solution like the Pope always forced and asked for it, NATO is waging an economic and proxy war in order to weaken Russia. The German Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Annalena Baerbock, uh, also states she wants to ruin Russia, not only to weaken Russia. So they want to destroy Russia, they say. And the German federal government, such as most European um, countries, is blindly following uh, this strategy led by the US supplying vast weapons deliveries and de uh, deploying troops to Eastern Europe, as well as imposing severe sanctions against Russia. And this strategy is both wrong and dangerous for three reasons. First, 
there is a great risk that the weapons deliveries from NATO member states, as well as the training of Ukraine service personnel to use those weapons, will draw the Western alliance into a direct involvement in the war in Ukraine. Second, arms transfer and military support, unlike diplomatic negotiations and security guarantee, will not end this war, but prolong it at an unbearable humanitarian cost. And third, by hurting Europe more than Russia's sanctions have exactly the opposite effect of their stated goal. Despite a drop in supplies due to higher energy prices as a result of sanctions, Russia had record energy export revenues in May 2022. The architects, architects of the current NATO strategy have overlooked the fact that Russia has been heavily engaged in shifting its trade, energy, and industrial policy towards Asia since 2014 already. In just a few years, Moscow will be in a position to redirect Russian energy supplies that used to go to Europe entirely to Asia, particularly to China, India, Pakistan, and Vietnam. And this explains why the West's economic war against Russia has been unsuccessful so far. So far, with regard to Germany, the economic war puts the entire German model of prosperity at risk. We have seen this result today in the news. Germany is falling as an economic powerhouse on a global scale. Germany's trade surplus is gone. Foreign trade balance came in a minus 1 billion in May, I mean, uh, uh, one, uh, one month ago, which is in the first negative print since 1991 due to its energy problems and weakness in manufacturing. So in Germany, energy prices have already risen by 60% compared to the previous year, and large sectors of the population barely have enough money to last until the end of the month in the face of skyrocketing food prices. So in the event of a full energy embargo, people will not only freeze in winter in Germany, but millions of jobs would be at stake. The German central bank estimates that a total energy embargo would cause an annual deficit of 180 billion euro. And while the German and European populations suffer from economic and proxy warfare against Russia, the military industrial complex is the main beneficiary of this development. In Germany alone, a 100 billion rearmament fund is being set up in addition to the annual military budget of already about 55 billion euro. So in addition, the federal government has committed itself to NATO's two percentage target in the long term. And this is the most extensive rearmament of Germany since the end of World War II. As a result, Germany will have the third largest military expenditures in the world after the United States and China. And it will have the largest in Europe, just imagine. So I mean, in the past, we had this, this example already. The war in Ukraine serves as pretextual reason to legitimize the rearmament that have been planned independently for, for it for years. But the policy of arms escalation is also catastrophic in social terms in view of the necess necessary repayment 
of billions in debt and the long-term commitment to future NATO capability, uh, capability for uh, goals, financial resources are tied up that would be needed for urgent social policy, infrastructure policy, and climate policy measures and investments. At the NATO summit in Madrid, the rearmament has been deepened. NATO's common budget for the headquarter and so on is set to increase by another 20 billion by 2030 to 45 billion over seven years. And moreover, the summit showed one thing, NATO's strategy is on expansion and in intensified block confrontation in order to re-establish the collapsing US hegemony around the world. Although Russia was once again marked as the principal enemy at the summit, China is increasingly coming into a focus of the NATO. So we are facing a complete geographical delimitation of NATO's intervention area. If this, I mean, the NATO is called a North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And I'm asking myself, what's about the Indo-Pacific in the North Atlantic? So, I mean, it's so far away from the North Atlantic. And we are facing a complete geographical delimitation of NATO's intervention area. And if this new Cold War won't be stopped, it will lead to rising danger of military and nuclear escalation, new arms race, and massive social impoverishment. In view of that growing danger, I see the following as tasks for an anti-militarist movement. While the military Atlanticists have an intensive, well-financed infrastructure to advance their cause, there is as yet no global network of social forces that support disarmament, anti-war policies, international law, and social cohesion. We need a third pole. The enemies of working class and working people are not China or Russia, but the Western arms manufacturers, who, those who profit from escalation and war, and the Western oligarchs. We should therefore foster an intensive debate and cooperation of progressive forces who oppose war policies and oligarch capitalism. It doesn't matter where it is. And if NATO, if NATO goes global, we need to go global too, friends. This event is an important contribution to this. That's why I thank you in advance for the good discussion we will have. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed, Sefim, and please send our solidarity greetings to the peace movement in Germany with this extraordinary challenge that they're facing now of this intense militarization. So thank you very much for that. Before I turn to our next speaker, um, I've got a couple of announcements to make. Um, one is to convey apologies from Danielle Abono. That's uh, Danielle is the um, MP from La France Insoumise. They've recently had a massive electoral victory. So um, congratulations to them. And of course, we're sorry that Danielle can't be with us, but we understand she has specific responsibilities in Parliament now on a, on a Monday evening. My second announcement is to say that we have over a thousand people watching um, obviously here, but also uh, across social media platforms, uh, including from the following places. 
That's Belfast, Bristol, Sirencester, Edinburgh, Froome, Glasgow, Hastings, Hull, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester, Oxford, Southampton, Southend, Thanet, West London, Wolverhampton, Lisbon in Portugal, and Florence and Tivoli in Italy. So wherever you are, we're delighted that you're here with us today. So turning to our next speaker, it's a pleasure to welcome Varsha Gundikota from the Progressive International. Varsha will be speaking on the amazing struggles for a better world that are taking place in India and beyond and that have been such an enormous inspiration to us. Varsha, over to you. Thank you, Kate. And hi, everyone. I'm delighted to be here, of course, with fellow members of the Progressive International, Jeremy and Yanis, but also along with so many friends from the left from around the world. I was thinking about the topic for today, building global movements for peace, people and planet. And I'm not one um, who usually talks about war and peace, but if peace is about living without distress and disturbance, I thought, you know, few things are more urgent than the fact that we have 2.7 billion hungry people in the world today. I mean, 2.7 billion people that are hungry. And this is not about food shortage, right? We make enough food for the whole world, but we still have billions who cannot access it because they cannot afford it. And as we've all read, I know that the UK has a cost of living crisis right now, but across the world, food prices have reached their highest ever level in March this year. So in that sense, you know, to me, this really feels like it's a kind of war. It's a cruel war where billions of people are forced to be at war with their own lives, forcing their bodies to work through starvation, to care for their families so that they can live to see another day. You know, my comrades have uh, pointed out that usually when I give these kind of speeches, I often say something like, it's stunning to me that more people aren't talking about this. But actually, when it comes to the food crisis, everyone is talking about it. It's made the front pages from the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, The New York Times, Guardian, all of our political leaders across the world are talking about it. And they all seem to say the same thing, that the war in Ukraine is what's led us here. Of course, leaders in Russia blame the sanctions for the price increases. Those in the US and Europe blame Russia's blockades for the price increases. And I'm certainly in no position to investigate which claim is true. But I did want to understand why and how the stopping of exports from two countries could create such an unprecedented collapse for the entire planet. And then I looked at the numbers and I looked at something like wheat, right? And Russia and Ukraine together account for less than 14% of global wheat production. So yes, of course, this war has led to some spikes in food prices. But if you look at the numbers, you'll see that the amount of lesser food is really less than 1%. So that makes you think, do we, do we really even have a crisis? But to understand that, we have to look at a different statistic to unravel this puzzle of the food crisis. There are just four large traders in the entire world that control 70% of the entire world's food production. And they're called um, the ABCD group which is you know, three of them, three large firms, also investors in the financial market that are from the US, Archer Daniels Midland, Bunch, Cargill, and the fourth one is Louis Dreyfus from uh, a Netherlands-based firm. And this means that you know, controlling 70% of everything that is produced anywhere in the world means they get to control what is planted by whom and where, where and when it's sold it, and at what prices. 
So yes, food prices have seen a dramatic increase, you know, more than something like 30% over last year, but it's not because of anything tangible that's changed. It's because companies know that crises like the war in Ukraine, like the COVID crisis bring misery to the many, yes, but they bring super profits to the corporations and they know this extremely well. So if you look at the spiraling global food prices, that's created something like 62 new food billionaires in just the last two years since the beginning of the pandemic. And it's about to push something like 260 million more people into acute poverty. So if I, I went to see exactly how many profits these companies and you know, the CEOs of these corporations made, and that's about $453 billion. So Oxfam came out with these research and to put these things into perspective, you know, brain has trouble processing large numbers after a point. So to put these things into perspective, they said, uh, you know, it's equivalent to making more than $1 billion every two days. And, but I was comparing these two numbers and a different kind of comparison came to my mind, right? These are the companies that make a billion dollars every time they push a person into hunger. So yes, we talk about them as agribusinesses, businesses that trade in food, but really what they're trading in is starvation. They're trading in hunger because that's what brings them profits. Feeding people doesn't bring them money. It's starving them and creating hunger that brings them the money. And they do it because they can. The world that we've set up, you know, Jeremy talked about how we need to change the world order that we live in. I mean, the world order that we have right now for food, for the very basic thing that keeps us alive since 1991, all of our organizations are institutions that are ostensibly meant to you know, ensure equality and justice in the world, like the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, all of them have pushed for a liberalization in food markets. That's meant that farmers were pushed off of their land. That meant that they couldn't decide what's actually produced by their own hands on their own lands. So developing countries were forced to produce things like vanilla and pepper, to be used in ice cream somewhere in uh, you know, Scandinavia, maybe not pepper ice cream, but you know, vanilla ice cream, instead of producing food crops for their people. It meant that governments in the global south were told they couldn't support their own farmers, even as large farms in the global north, in countries like the US and Europe, were subsidized so that they could dump their cheap food onto poorer countries, creating essentially the perfect world order that's that's wanted and desired by the imperial powers, which is a terrible, terrible cycle of dependence. But you know, all of this, after this talk, if any of you were to go and try and read reports on, um, on the food crisis from the EU, from the World Food Program, from the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization, I promise you, you won't see a single mention of any of these four companies. They'll talk about food security, a very funny term that those of you familiar with policy and NGOs might, might recognize, but they too know that what we actually need is not security from hunger, but security from those causing hunger. So here today, you know, if we wanna talk about building a global movement for people, the people in say Western Southern Africa with the sharpest increases in prices are to be expected, they're not being given any weapons to fight this war, to fight against the ABCDs of hunger, to fight against the deadly virus. For the last two years, my work has included trying to get COVID-19 vaccines in the middle of a deadly pandemic to parts of the world that didn't have it. Big pharmaceutical companies held the patents, they were making astronomical profits, but factories in the rest of the world were sitting idle that could make the vaccines but couldn't because despite 100 countries fighting it out, over the last two years to remove intellectual property protections, we lost this fight just two weeks ago, actually, if you've been following the news, because the US, UK, EU all opposed it. You know, and uh, I remember when I was doing this work that in, a, I think it was a press conference, um, 
and there was Strive uh, Masia, who was the at the time the African Union's team working on vaccines, and he was sitting across from Pfizer CEO uh, Albert Borla, and he said, "Listen, let's just you know." Albert was talking about kind of difficulty in production, inequalities, blah blah, blah. and he said, "Let's just call it what it is, right? This is a deliberate system." Um, a global, deliberate global architecture of unfairness. So if there's a drought and the rich countries just grab the baker and run away with him, and then you say, oh no, there isn't enough bread and beg all of us to go and beg for a loaf of bread. That's the architecture that we have in place. So Strive, of course, is absolutely right. Albert Borla of Pfizer has blood on his hands. You know, David McLennan, who's the CEO of Cargill, and his 16 other family members, by the way, who I think have added themselves onto the Forbes whatever billionaire list that they come out with every year, they've just gotten added onto it. All of them have blood on their hands. So we've been calling it a vaccine apartheid. Now we're calling it food inequity as we're talking about the food crisis. But Engels you know, had, had a word for this. He called it social murder. In, in his words, he said, you know, the class that holds social and political control, it's placed the workers and the conditions in which they can neither retain health nor live long. Think about that, neither retain health nor live wrong. That's what we're seeing on a daily basis, crisis after crisis. We're seeing social murder being committed by the rich countries of the world against the poor. So I think for me, if we're looking for directions, I have the privilege of uh, being here in India today where the farmers movement is one of the decisive victories against uh, neoliberalism the last few decades. And this is precisely the system that they've said no to. And in fact, if you look at Ukraine, right, even there where Russia's brutal invasion has meant destruction of seed banks, has meant big warehouses have been destroyed, it's actually small farmers that have once again taken the mantle and said, we'll, be, we'll continue producing for our people. So they have the answers and they've proven themselves to be resilient to capitalist crises. So once again, as we come together for peace, I think we start if from at least from my point of view, I think we start with the farmers that feed us and those whom we're failing to feed. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thanks very much indeed, Barsha. That was incredibly interesting um, and a lot of new, really new information for me. So thanks for opening that window to us. Um, so I'm turning now to uh, our media partner, Labour Outlook. Patrick Foley, welcome to say a few words. Hi, okay, thanks for that and thanks for the introduction. Um, just for people who don't know, I'm Patrick Foley. I'm an organiser for Arise and also for our media out uh, partner, Labour Outlook. Um, and if you don't know about Labour Outlook, we're an alternative media platform that's been bringing positive news, views and analysis from the left and also internationally. Um, and so we've been involved in helping with Arise Festival and also the coverage of Arise Festival so far. Um, our work amplifies the voices of socialists, builds support for frontline, move, uh, frontline movements of resistance against the Tories and others, um, and also supports movements of international solidarity. Uh, but we need your help, and I'm just here today to ask for your support. Uh, Labour Outlook has recently launched a Patreon page so that you can directly support our work, and I know that there's over 200 people who go and check our site daily, um, and many, many more who read uh, some of the bigger articles and, and across the month. Um, and if all of you became a Labour Outlook patron, we could completely change the way our platform is run, really expand our work um, and continue to build these, these important voices from across the left in the UK, but also internationally as well. Um, so there should be links going around in the chat, but please do have a look at becoming a patron. It's less than £10 a month and your support ensures that we can continue our work. It's as simple as that. Um, 
we're count we're countering the narrative spun by the billionaire own press and that's whether it's here uh, with the, the tory supportive media or internationally as well with the um the silencing of voices for peace and internationalism uh, but all of this takes resources time and commitment so with your support we're going to keep building that platform but we need your help so please go to labor out uh, go to patreon.com slash labor outlook and have a look um, and if that's something that you can do that'd be fantastic if you can't afford to support us on Patreon right now, that's okay. There's other ways you can get involved. Uh, like I said, we have many readers who come and check the site daily. Uh, come and come check us out, labouroutlook.com. Um, talk about Labour Outlook. Tell your friends about Labour Outlook. The word of well, the word of um, mouth does wonders for us. You know, it's a, a real personal touch. Um, and also share and follow Labour Outlook online. Uh, you can again, the website's there. You can follow us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter. And once you become a patron, you can see all our content, you get early access to a few um, interviews and such. Um, just a, a final plug would be, we've recently interviewed Alex Gordon, uh, the RMT president. So yeah, go to our site there, have a look at that, uh, have a look at our work. And um, that, a big thank you to everyone who's actually already signed up on Patreon so far. It's making a world of difference and really changing what we can do and what we can achieve. Um, so thank you everyone amazing contribution so far it's great to have such an international panel uh, i'm learning a lot myself just like kate said just then um and so thanks again for listening back to you kate thanks very much patrick and uh, good luck with that um so turning to our next speaker it's a pleasure to welcome gabriel rodriguez from the international transport workers federation in argentina and he's going to be sharing some hopeful news from Latin America, where the left is again on the advance. So welcome, Gabriel. Thank you, uh, Kate. Thanks to Arise and Matt for the invitation. Thanks to you for uh, letting me uh, join this uh, group of uh, leaders that are trying to change the world for the better. Um, so we, we heard from, from Barge in particular the um, disparity uh, of uh, the wealth distribution and the food distribution in the world. And we heard from Jeremy about uh, the um, gap between the, the ones that are better off and the ones that are struggling to, to get food. And, and I think it has a lot to do with uh, my, my personal story and the personal story of millions of uh, people in Latin America uh, because I, I, I was lucky. Uh, I uh, was raised in a family uh, with um, parents who had uh, organized uh, jobs, jobs with support from unions. And I got uh, an education and food enough to develop that education. And, uh, and, and I could have a, also a, a job in the airline with a union supporting uh, the CBA, the rights, the conditions. And in the end, I got into the leadership of the union and now I am uh, part of the, of the leadership of the International Transport Workers Federation as, as a former union leader uh, in Argentina, um, based in London now. So, but, but why I'm, I'm telling you this, because uh, I was lucky, but millions of others were not and, and, and I still, still aren't. Um, the history of uh, politics in Latin America has been destroying um, organizations, destroying the capacity of uh, the workers, of the people to organize themselves. We've seen, um, we've seen that 
in, in the last uh, century, I would say, um, the politics in Latin America have moved like a pendulum uh, from very violent uh, uh, dictatorships imposing um, measures to concentrate the wealth, to support the corporations to concentrate the wealth, and then times where the, the movement of the people, of the unions, of the social movements could uh, succeed in changing the politics and changing the balance and getting back part of what they lost. Uh, but every time that were lost, thousands of lives uh, uh, have been lost and mainly activists, you know, union leaders, social organizers, people who were already trained and were very eager uh, to bring more justice to, to Latin America. And we lost them. We lost many, many of them uh, through, through history. So what we've been trying to do from the union movement and particularly from the International Transport Workers Federation uh, in, in the region and elsewhere is to rebuild that strength, to rebuild those organizations, to rebuild the capacity of the workers to get a better distribution of the wealth uh, for them and for their sisters and brothers. And we've been successful depending of course on where the pendulum was moving and uh, now we see that uh, we clearly see that we are having more uh, left-wing and more progressive uh, um, governments in Latin America. And hopefully we are going to have still a couple more coming in, um, which will be a great opportunity for the work that uh, we are doing. You, we heard um, uh, if, if you were part of these uh, discussions in the past, you might have heard that we could rebuild the, the Transport Federation in Venezuela um, during the years of Chavez to negotiate in a better position with the private um, transport companies and corporations that were already there, but also with the, with the government and uh, have a, a, a better say, a, an, an organized way of dealing with the defense, the defense of their own rights. And, uh, but we've, we've been working not only in Venezuela, uh, we've been working all over the region. More recently, we've been with uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, and uh, his um, uh, Peace and Justice project working in Mexico, Mexico with this uh, new government of Andres Manuel López Obrador and uh, with the support of uh, Napoleon Gómez Urrutia, the senator that uh, took uh, a lead on a new labor reform. This is giving an opportunity to unions uh, or group of workers that didn't have a union, that didn't have the capacity of have their own strength um, to, to have their own. You know, in Mexico, the history of uh, trade unionism is very, very sad. Um, I'm not going to give you the whole story. I'm not going to bore you, but uh, for many decades and with the support of the PRI, the, the government in power, um, if you were an international corporation um, building your first uh, uh, company into Mexico, you could have a CBA and a union before hiring the first worker. So it, they, were, they are called protection unions or unions of convenience, as we call them. Um, but they're not unions in reality. They're just a way of avoiding the workers to get to the right defense of their own uh, conditions. 
Um, and this is what this labor reform from uh, Lopez Obrador is bringing, is giving the opportunity to these workers to control their unions democratically, to at least know where their union is, believe it or not, and know their rights and know their CBAs. So there is um, um, some a few months still where all unions will have to ensure that under the labor reform uh, will bring in the democratic voice of the workers and the participation of the workers. So we are encouraging um, groups of workers that didn't have that opportunity to do it now, to do it under the labor reform and to get these uh, organizations uh, that could defend their rights. Uh, we were really, really happy to be with uh, Jeremy and his team uh, working in Mexico City a couple of weeks ago. So in order to build, build global movements for peace, uh, people and planet, we are uh, building this grassroots uh, resistance, uh, this grassroots defense. We need a sustainable planet, of course, but we need, and we are tra as transport workers um, know very clearly that we need um, a, a planet that is socially sustainable. We need to ensure uh, that uh, we save our planet altogether and that we have the opportunity to defend uh, our planet uh, for a more sustainable future from the environmental world, uh, point of view, but also from the social point of view. That's our big aim in the, in the ITF. Thank you, Kate. Thanks very much indeed, Gabrielle. And I think there is a lot that we have to learn from you in Latin America about movement building and building unity and solidarity on the left. So thank you very much for that contribution. I'm turning now to our next speaker, Yanis Varoufakis. Yanis is from DM25 in Greece. And um, thank you for joining us, Yanis, because I know that you have to go and speak at another meeting shortly. Um, Yanis was involved with a recent important peace initiative in Athens and is a key alternative voice globally for economic alternatives to neoliberalism. So Yanis, the floor is yours. Thank you, Comrade Kate. Uh, thank you everyone for the invitation. Uh, this is uh, a very worthy initiative. I'm very sorry that I'm speaking to you from a car. But let me give you some context, because I think it's not um, uh, independent of the theme uh, of uh, our get-together today. I am speaking to you from North Crete, the island of Crete. We are involved in two simultaneous campaigns, as DiEM25, as Mel25, as the Progressive International of Jeremy and I belong to, uh, and I think many of you also are aware of and are also participating in. The two campaigns are, uh, at the domestic front, we have a snap election coming up, and uh, you can imagine whether we are in a pre-election mode. And the main task we have as a progressive party, as a radical party of the left, is um, to end the absolute monopoly over the media and the levers of power by a tiny oligarchy, which is um, combining the bankruptcy of the Greek state with the new austerity, which takes the form of the cost of living crisis, in order to squeeze even more wealth out of the many who have been dispossessed after 13, 14 years of austerity. 
That's one struggle, one campaign. It's a local campaign, it's a national campaign, it's a Greek campaign, but just like back in 2010, when we had a huge austerity drive that had global significance, uh, this one also has global significance. There is a second campaign. Uh, a few miles from where I am in this car, there is an American, a United States base, military base, from which there are at least 90 sorties every day with uh, weaponry that is being sent to the front in Ukraine. The island of Crete plus uh, um, a port in North Greece is the main gateway through which the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and the United States are fueling this uh, uh, hideous war in Ukraine. Make no mistake, uh, like Jeremy, uh, I was one of those people who in 2001 protested against Vladimir Putin as a war criminal. He is exactly that. But this is not a struggle between good and evil. It's a struggle between evil and evil. Between the evil of NATO, which is um, essentially a proxy for the American military industrial complex on the one hand, and the fossil fuel industry on the other, and the evil of the quasi-fascist war criminal called Putin. And it's this island here in Crete, which following the collapse of our radical movement in 2015, which uh, found its expression and voice in that magnificent referendum on the 5th of July 2015, when 62% of the Greek people said no to Washington, no to Berlin, no to Brussels, no to Frankfurt. <clears throat> it's the result of that collapse of that front, which allows today this very island to become a gigantic aircraft carrier for a NATO determined to pursue the policies of um, the fossil fuel industry and the military industrial complex, while at the same time, the European Central Bank, in tandem with the Bank of England, in tandem with the Federal Reserve in the United States, are yet again targeting the many through uh, monetary policies for the purposes of shifting wealth away from them, from, them, from the many to the very few. Uh, our struggles, whether we are on Crete or whether we're in London or Glasgow or uh, New Delhi or Nigeria are one. There is a unity in the struggle. This is uh, uh, a total war by a constantly destabilizing and unstable oligarchic cabal uh, against the interest of humanity. The manner in which COP26 in uh, Scotland last year has been forgotten, the manner in which NATO has revived itself and has completely taken over any semblance of the European Union, therefore making the whole Brexit question completely obsolete. Uh, these are all just repercussions of our collective failure to do that which fascists and bankers have so successfully done. That is to cooperate internationally, to form a changing progressive international movement that uh, can take the fight to interests who have no compunction and no qualms about jeopardizing the interests of humanity in the interests of very short term 
completely um, pointless gains by those who already have everything. Thank you, Kate, and sorry if I spoke long. Thanks very much indeed, Yanis. And you could have spoken for twice as long. <laughs> but thank you very much for joining us this evening. Um, and um, now I turn to our closing speaker. We're closing with an African and global perspective from our long-standing friend and comrade, Jechi Tano, from the Third World Network in Ghana. Jechi, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, Kate, and uh, thank you to Arise for this important discussion. Um, I think that uh, it couldn't be more timely, this urgency that uh, we all recognize and are trying to uh, underline about the necessity of building movements. I think every previous speaker has given different dimensions of the, uh, including your own introduction, of, 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 of this necessity. Um, <clears throat> And indeed, uh, whenever people act and whenever movements come to life, that is the hope that millions of people across the world have. Across the world, people have watched what a small, relatively small strike by 40,000 RMT members here in Britain, what it demonstrates in terms of the potential for movements and the potential for working people to institute a new, a, a different order of things. When uh, McLynch, the railway workers leader, talks in terms of when he says, for example, that all of you have the power, a wheel doesn't turn, a light doesn't go on without us, we create all of the wealth in, in this society, all of it. It's our labor that delivers the services, makes the goods, distributes them, delivers them to the people. And you know, basically he says, do not fall for the tricks of the media trying to play one set of workers or one set of workers in, in, in a different sector or in different countries against each other. We can organize ourselves and fight back. We refuse to be poor anymore. Now that's a powerful statement because in addition to what it emphasizes, in addition to what it emphasizes in terms of the power of labor and the, and the, and the fact that the whole edifice of wealth that the oligarchs that Yanis just referred to, you know, monopolize for themselves is based on the ordinary uh, the production of ordinary workers. In addition to that, it also affirms other things because it is that same uh, uh, common experience and that same common reality, which gives us the concrete basis for the solidarity that we need. It is true also that those who farm the land and work in the factories and deliver the services, the cooperation that exists among themselves, their need for a healthy life and health, healthy working environments and for better conditions is the best protection for the planet that we can have. We, we see this in in the case of farmers everywhere in Asia, Latin America, uh, Africa, elsewhere, and, and, and so forth. It is also true that these are the people who, if they are not mobilized into movements that can provide alternatives, are forced to look to different solutions. What McLean says is true whether you're in England, whether you're in Ecuador, or whether you're in Ethiopia. But when those movements are missing, other things can happen. So in the case of Ethiopia, for example, we saw that the same processes of neoliberalism that are driving gentrification in cities that are driving land, land grabs led to a situation where the land around the capital city, people were being dis displaced in the tens of thousands and they rose up in magnificent resistance. But at the same time, they did not interpret what was happening necessarily as an attack on capitalism and therefore did not see their, uh, as an attack by capital, by capital or see their resistance as part of the global, the, the anti-capitalist resistance. 
For that reason, they tend to look towards identity politics. They interpreted their experience as something as a, you know, depredations being imposed on them by a section of the ruling class, which comes from a different ethnicity. So the magnificent resistance soon tend to harm because then again, you had this weaponized ethno-religious conflicts and so on. We see this the length and breadth of the world. Meanwhile, in that same region, we, we, we see now the tragedy of war within uh, Ethiopia itself. That war isn't going to end in that, in that region because the United States, just like our comrade from uh, um, uh, uh, Germany was talking about, the NATO is simply the, 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 the pretext for NATO, the agenda for NATO now is the globalization of its, of, its, of its power and its presence in every region. And the United States has returned to Somalia quietly, but powerfully since the, for the first time since the disaster that it faced there in 1990. We see the presence of French troops, German troops, and the United States in the Sahel. The same Sahel that is you know, uh, destroyed by drought, is destroyed by famines, and destroyed by the conflicts that we see. Again, we can see this in the south of the continent of Africa as well. We, we see in a country like Madagascar, the country that in 2021 was declared to be the zone, the territory of, of the first global, uh, uh, the first climate famine on the globe. Since then, it has been declared as the world's first climate disaster zone. It has faced two cyclones in this year alone, displacing 4 million people and you know, driving 4 million people into penury and, and, and starvation and directly displacing millions more. So comrades, the idea of necessarily and confronting, they're confronting the questions of peace, of people, of planet have to be interlinked. We must build movements in this in this in, in each of these uh, on each of these questions, but we must also emphasize that the qualitative necessity of building links between those movements is 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 is, uh, is absolutely vital because we need a systemic change. We need a systemic approach. We need a system change. We need a, a, a transformation of social relations uh, and and uh, of, of of the relations of, of politics and economy that dominates uh, dominate us globally today. From that perspective, we have to ask how how do we do that because there are real challenges. And I think that if we take what Arise has been doing and what, what, what it constitutes, it gives us some sense of what we should be doing globally as well, in addition to building all the movements that others have talked about. Political organizations, explicitly political organizations are central to this process because political organizations are those which ought to, at least ought to be defined by the fact that they have a comprehensive program which touches on the aspects of the system as a whole that impinges on the lives of ordinary people. That clearly has to be, and has historically has been, what the labor left re re represents and so on. But if indeed you are in a wider formation, and this is a question that I would like to throw back, you know, without knowing too much of the, of the, uh, of the, of the details of it, but this is a question that I think that those on the labor left who are being constrained by the likes of Kiestama, which says do not show solidarity to RMT workers. Where do, we, where do you go now? I think the necessity of having a home where people can freely develop their interventions in these movements, bring together activists in these movements, take back and learn together, share together is necessary. The idea that we must distill and concentrate uh, you know, in the face of the fragmentation and divisions that are, and conflicts that are being fostered upon us, in the face of the inequalities that are rife and rampant. Uh, the comrade from uh, India, for example, talked about the food crisis. It is absolutely true. Every 30 hours we have a billionaire being created. But in that same 30 hours, one, more, one million more people are being driven into abject poverty, the kind of poverty which says that entire families can, should survive on, on the equivalent of two pounds sterling or less. So comrades, the urgency of the situation that we face, can, I mean, cannot be over, 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 over emphasized. It's
It's not simply about the fact that we have we are in the midst of wars that promise, uh, you know, uh, you know, bring us closer to the to the unthinkable uh, uh, situation of new, new nuclear weapons being deployed, you know, to, to resolve conventional warfare that has come uh, that has come to Europe. So I think that uh, what I'd like to end by saying is this: we have to see ourselves not simply in, in as progressives, as people who want uh, social equality, who want to fight against climate change. We have to see ourselves as revolutionaries anti-capitalist revolutionaries. Uh, internationalism ought to be posited on this. And therefore, in the same uh, way, to echo what the comrade from Germany proposed, in, in, by, you know, by way of the necessity of building a, 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 a real international peace movement and so on, I would also think that we also have to turn our attention and give priority to building uh, international links as revolutionaries who are anti-capitalist, who are opposed to imperialism, as well. And I think that every, in the same way that we were learning from the RMT everywhere in the world, we could also learn from the labor left if they managed to actually develop an organization like that. This is a challenge that I throw to you from a fraternal spirit. It's a challenge that we would like to see uh, answers to because those models are things that give us inspiration everywhere in the world and enable us to fight better, arm ourselves better, organize ourselves better, develop, give real meaning and real concreteness to the solidarity that all of us uh, uh, talk about. So once again, I'd like to thank all of you I think that this is a, a, a hugely important moment, and it's a it's a turning point. Even Joe Biden has to, for his own purposes, has to say that we are at, at an inflection point. I think it's a lot more than an inflection point. And that is not what people in uh, Mozambique will consider when their lives are destroyed on a day-to-day -day basis by famine, by war, and at the same time, you know, new minerals are being dug up out of the earth. New forms of agricultural exports are being, uh, you know, uh, taken out of the, of their country while their people uh, starve, and, and the land and, and conditions around them continue to be devastated. So, comrades, let's also think that part of the movement, this movement of movement that we need to build, does not denigrate or does not devalue any single movement. But the best way to contribute to that interlink is to have political hubs, political core, political uh, organizations that have the program, the program, 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 programmatic breath, English is not my first language, by the way, <laughs> the programmatic breath, but also have the depth of, of, of a, a revolutionary activists which are concentrated in one organization and can bring those perspectives, bring the lessons, bring the attitude in a non-sectarian way to all the movements that we, we, we all of us have affirmed are, are needed today. That too is part of the hope that we, we, we must look for. Our real job is to provide hope and to provide the means by which that hope comes to life as a material force and as a vision for people to live to live with and to work by. Comrades, this is really what I want to end on here. Thank you very much once again for all of you. Thanks very much indeed, Jetshi, and that's a, that's a very powerful message from you this evening, a very inspiring message, and for me, your stress on the importance of linking the movements. I mean, that's that's really, really fundamental. And the, the message there that how when people act in unity and solidarity, then we can indeed change the world. So thank you very, very much indeed for that. And that brings our meeting to an end. So thank you very much indeed to everyone for participating, for joining us this evening, particularly to our speakers, but also to the hundreds or thousands of you out there who will be watching this now or watching back later. So we know we have very important battles ahead. 
We also know how important it is that we build and strengthen our movements for peace, for people and for the planet. And of course, we also know how essential events like this are to build understanding and that cooperation and really vital international solidarity and unity. So please get involved with campaigns on the issues that we've discussed today. And of course, also please come along to future sessions at the Arise Festival. I think Matt uh, mentioned already the next evening event. That's at 7 p.m. this Wednesday, and it's on supporting public ownership. So we must keep working together to insist there is no return to business as usual when it comes to our economy and politics. And we must not only argue that a better world is possible, but we must work together to win that better world. And of course, none of this will be possible without our anti-war internationalism and our solidarity with progressive forces globally. This must be at the heart of our struggle. So thank you for joining us tonight and goodbye. <laughs>